Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story, and one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data. From Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware, Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based champion championship team. I'm Mark Feinzan, executive reporter for MLB.com. Welcome to the Executive Access Podcast. Zach Scott grew up in Natick, Massachusetts, playing stratomatic baseball, embarking on a career in baseball simulation software after graduating from college. A chance meeting with Theo Epstein changed his life forever as he would go on to work as an intern for the Red Sox in 2004, the start of a lengthy stint with the club that continues today in his role as Senior Vice President and Assistant General Manager. I recently sat down with Zach to discuss his rise through the Red Sox front office, the role of analytics in the game, working around Bill James, and why, had things worked out a little differently, he might have been the next John Popper. Enjoyed this conversation with Red Sox Senior Vice President and Assistant General Manager, Zach Scott. Zach, you grew up in Natick, Massachusetts, hometown of my mentor, the late great Jack Falla. Uh, safe to assume you were a big Red Sox fan growing up? I was. I was a, a big Red Sox fan. Uh, started really getting into them like a lot of kids do with their first, uh, well, first in my, that I could remember, pro, postseason run in 1986. So got into it that season, got my heart broken right away. So yeah, I was immediately hooked. Indoctrinated like every yeah, Red Sox fan exactly. should be. I uh, feel the pain right away. <laughs> I read that you were a big Stratomatic baseball guy growing up. Uh, was that kind of your first introduction to the deep, broad world of baseball statistics? Uh, yeah. my I have an older brother. He's seven years older than me. And he, um, got, he bought Stratomatic and thought I might like it. So we started playing um, during, uh, it was a season during the late 80s. I want to say like 89 was probably the year we started playing and um yeah i just i loved it right away uh, that's when i started to get interested in the numbers side of the game and wanted to find any book i could to read about that at the time there was not much out there but um, there were some bill james abstracts out there so got a hold of some of those and, and started reading his work uh, but yeah became a little probably too obsessed with stratomatic for for some time there when I was about 12, 13 years old. You would spend your first year of college at the University of Texas in Austin, a computer science major, and I read it was with the goal of being a uh, a career to create computer-based sports games, so sort of the same kind of thing. Was there ever a a thought as you were entering college of actually getting into sports themselves, or was that sort of linking both of your interests together? Yeah, no, I, I never, I mean, I played sports growing up, but I knew that it wasn't my future. Um, I was not a good baseball player at all, but that was definitely my favorite sport. Um, I started playing that really late. I played soccer for two seasons, and then um, I, for, you know, I'd play in the spring and the fall, and then decided when I was 13 that I wanted to play baseball, which was, so I was way behind everyone else, but um, just did it because I love the game, love being around it. Um, but never thought that I could play. So yeah, that was my goal was to become a programmer and maybe design uh, video games, specifically baseball games. Uh, actually, when my brother and I were playing Stratomatic, we one summer he he was a tech guy. He's actually been out in Silicon Valley for for years. After right after college, he went out there and he does um, microchip design, and so he was very technically oriented. So we he had the idea of trying to actually design our own. Um, stratomatic type game on the computer so we did that didn't go very far but <laughs> but it is kind of funny that uh you know given what I ended, I ended up doing ultimately um, as part of my career so you transferred from Texas up to the University of Vermont uh you majored in statistics there which 
makes sense given what you're doing. I'm always interested in seeing guys in baseball front offices who, you know, majored in Latin classics or history or something. Statistics seems like it would be a, a logical choice. When, I guess, you know, you wanted to, you still had the computer programming thing as sort of your goal at that point? No, I, I switched. When I transferred, um, I knew I didn't want to be a programmer anymore. Um, and so, you know, my I, when I was thinking about what I wanted to study, it was really, I thought back to um, my interest in baseball statistics and kind of how um, that, the math part of the game kind of came easy to me and just in general math did. And so I pursued a degree in statistics. Um, that was why. So I wanted to get on that path, the analytics path. You graduate college and you went to work for a, a place called Diamond Mind, which was a developer of baseball simulation software. So kind of what you had projected out yeah, from I mean, Texas. Yeah, and Diamond Mind, that's why I said before it was, you know, what I ended up doing was working for a company that made a game and our biggest competitor was Stratomatic Baseball, <laughs> uh, the computer game. So, yeah, it was, came full circle for, for a little bit there. What was that experience like going into it professionally? It was great. So I actually had a job um, for one year after college where I was an analyst and I was doing statistical programming as, as an analyst, um, but quickly found that I was mostly focused on some of the analytical work that was being written about. It was starting when you know Rob Nyer started to write a lot on ESPN, and, um, and that really was get, getting a lot of my focus. So I decided, you know, I need to see if I can pursue something. I have some technical skills, some analytical skills, obviously a passion for the game. And I just got very lucky that um, Tom Tippett, who was the uh, founder of Diamond Mind, was local in Boston. He was in Lexington, Mass. And I reached out to him and he said, hey, actually, you know, we're looking to expand our small company from three to four people. And I met with him and he hired me right away. And, you know, it was great to be able to spend my time learning a lot of the methods that he developed for analyzing uh, the different skills of the game. Uh, in particular, he's one of the probably maybe the first person to do a lot of uh, defensive analysis. We now know things like uh, UZR, that you know, those kind of that type of analysis where you're breaking the grid up, the field up into a grid, and seeing where the balls were caught and how many, you know, who, who did better. He he really was one of the first people to do that. He just didn't write about it. He put it instead into the into the product that we sold. So, yeah, I learned a ton from Tom. He was really my mentor, uh, mentor analytically, and then you know he ended up working as well for the Red Sox down the road. He was essentially responsible for the infamous Carmine, correct? Yeah, in fact, when I was working with him at Diamond Mind, he was um, always had in the back of his mind that he wanted to make sure the software that he that we were designing for the game uh, could also kind of double as a baseball information system. If he ever wanted to go down that path, he kind of kept that in mind. And so, um, yeah, so when the time came and that opportunity came for him, he was he was ready to bring a product to the table that could kind of push things forward for the Red Sox. Your your first encounter with Theo Epstein came at the Paradise Rock Club in yes, Boston, which, true. as a Boston University grad, big fan. <laughs> uh, how did that How did that meeting come about? So my my sister's husband, Mike Gent, is a musician who would play in the Hot Stove Cool Music charity concert that Peter Gammons and some friends of mine actually started. Um, at the time, I think it started originally to benefit the Jimmy Fund, and so. I happened to be backstage at that show. It was right after Theo had been hired as the general manager. Um, and so I was hanging out with my sister and her husband and some of our friends. And, and he was hanging out back there and definitely looked uncomfortable. And, uh, and some of my friends were saying, oh, you should go talk to him. Because, you know, when you, you're in a room with a GM and, you, you know, you do some baseball work, and when's, when are you going to get this opportunity? And, I, and my personality is just, just to kind of leave him alone. He looked uncomfortable as it is. And uh, it turns out, you know, one of my friends started talking to him and, he was. He seemed very excited to talk about baseball because it was, you know, getting back into his comfort zone. Um, and so we had a really good conversation. He had heard of Diamond Mind because we had written some articles for ESPN.com, and um, he knew Tom Tippett, and he wanted to know how uh, we could help the Red Sox. You know, being a new GM, he was looking for all different kind. Wanted to think about things differently and see, you know, be experimental and see if they're. Uh, he was open-minded to anything to try and help get the team get better. So we talked about talking again down the road. And so that eventually led to um, Tom meeting with Theo in spring training um, of 2003. And then really there was, it was kind of radio silence for a long time until 
until right when they were clinching the wild card spot at the end of 2003, and then Bill James reached out to Tom and said, "Hey, we were looking to do some kind of do a simulation of the upcoming Oakland series." And so Tom and I went over to Fenway, got to meet all the baseball operations guys, uh, spend time with Brian O'Halloran and Jed Hoyer, and. Uh, Bill James as well, and we ended up, and Theo was there as well, and we ended up uh, spending time mostly with Brian and Bill and kind of setting them up to be able to play out the series on our software um, so they could see if there was something they can learn. And uh, I think that was more fun than it was informative for them, but uh, it was was really a good in for, for me to get to know some of those guys. So speaking of the paradise, before we move on to your baseball career, I don't want to hear about these harmonica skills that I've read so much about. I read that you could have taken your career in that direction. Uh, I guess you were given an opportunity potentially to be the harmonica player in Budahead. Yes. Uh, and instead you ended up going the baseball route. As somebody who obviously was enjoyed the music part of it, was that a difficult decision not to pursue the music career? No, it wasn't a difficult decision because, you know, I had such a passion for the game that it was pretty easy it was it was cool to get that choice um yeah the band Buddha had uh, the bass player of that band was a guy who also grew up in Natick he was a year older than me growing up in high school and so when they would come to, I think they were based out of Philly uh New York I think yeah they bounced around to, between those two cities uh so when they would come to Boston I'd sit in and play some songs and I recorded some stuff with them um and so, yeah, the same day that Jed Hoyer called to offer me an internship with the Red Sox, they offered me an opportunity to join their band full-time. They were on Interscope Records at the time, and they were about to go tour Japan and then Europe. Uh, they ended up only touring Japan, and then a year later, they, they unfortunately got dropped by their label, which, uh, you know, as having some f- friends and family in the music business, um, you know, I knew that it's a really tough field to break into, and I... You know, I love playing the harmonica, but I know that's not really that wasn't my path. So um, it was it was pretty easy for me. What's your scouting report of yourself as a harmonica player? Um, I'm 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 really hard on myself, so I don't <laughs> you know. But I, I get good feedback from people. I know where my uh, strengths and weaknesses are. Let's put it that way. But um, you know, I I don't play that often. Maybe like once a year now. So my skills have gone way downhill. But um, there was a time where I had pretty good chops and felt pretty confident going up on stage. I always loved performing. Um, it was an adrenaline rush, so so it was just a fun thing to do. Yeah. I like the creativity of it, big into improvisational type music. I mean, that time is probably what seven, eight, nine years after Blues Traveler was really big. So yeah, you know, John Popper, I assume, was a guy that that people yeah. mentioned all the time because he yeah. was and he was probably the def- only really famous harmonica right. player, right? Yeah, and he was definitely an influence on me. I mean, I had kind of a faster style, nothing like his, but. Um, I also liked some of the um, very traditional blues artists, but could never get the kind of tone that those guys got. They're really impressive. So, so I was kind of a hybrid in the middle somewhere between those types of guys. So, probably not doing anything particularly well, but just being, <laughs> but holding my own. There you go. All right, back to baseball. Yeah. Uh, so, 2004, you take the job as an intern in baseball operations rather than playing the harmonica for Budahead. <laughs> the next year, you're hired as an assistant in the department. You get promoted in 2006 to assistant director of baseball ops. For a kid growing up in Natick, just outside of Boston, did this all sort of feel like a dream? Yeah, it definitely felt that way, especially in 04, obviously. Um, you know, starting as a fan, experiencing the pain of 86, and then to, to be a part of, a small part of um, the first championship in 86 years. I mean, it felt like a dream. It happened, it, everything happened so fast. It was kind of a blur. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's one of those things that, you know, working in baseball can be a grind, but we have to kind of take a step back and get some perspective and realize that you know, this is the dream job I wanted to have since I was probably 12, 13 years old, and not many people can say that, so I feel very fortunate. That was your first year as an intern in 04. Mm-hmm. you have any one memory that stands out from that World Series run? Um, well, there's, there's so many memories. Uh, but, I mean, a lot of the, the – I mean, the Yankee series in general is obviously the one that, that's going to stand out. But, but really for me, as part of that was kind of going through – the emotions of it. I was, you know, as an intern, we, we, one of the duties of the intern is to be on the radar gun that you also choose the pitch type that goes up on the scoreboard. And I was on 
the uh, the gun for the 19 to 8 drubbing of <laughs> in game three, and uh, that was hard because you know you had lots of time to sit there and realize our season's about to be over, and, right? And we weren't really that competitive, and it was pretty painful. And you know we didn't have a suite back then to to kind of hide in, so Theo sitting out there, and guys had to sit out there because they didn't want to walk away, you know, not being supportive of the team. But it was just really painful to sit there. And, you know, we went back into the office after that, kind of just sitting around, kind of dreaming about what it would be like to uh, to come back and, and win that series, but not thinking that we really would because we're very realistic about these things. And some of the things that people said, I won't go into all the details and tell their stories, but what they would do if we won and then being able to actually do that in Yankee Stadium um, was pretty amazing. You were promoted again, director of Major League Operations for five years, then vice president of baseball research and development the next two. You were kind of the first R&D guy, right, for this team? Um, no, I mean, I'd say actually Tom Tippett was the first, for the Red Sox, was the first person probably in charge of that. But we were so small, right. um, it's totally different than kind of where teams have gone now. Um, but for a while in that director role that I was in, I mean, for a big chunk of my time at the Red Sox, I wasn't doing a whole lot of analytics. I was early on because we were very, um, it was pretty primitive in what we were doing. Um, but we were still ahead of the curve because it just a lot of teams weren't doing too much. Um, in fact, I'd say I took a step back going from Diamond Mine to the Red Sox in terms of my access to data, which was surprising when I came there that, you know, we're scraping stuff off of, you know, ESPN and things like that. Um, but yeah, I was doing a lot of contract work. And I'm, for a while, I was overseeing our arbitration process, um, doing a lot of kind of major league rules, administrative stuff, roster management type of tasks. Um, so my feel for um, you know player performance was always a part of the discussion when we were talking through players. But I wasn't. We didn't formally have a, a department, and uh, so you know Tom was our main software developer, building the information system, and he also was our primary analyst. So. A lot's changed where you had, we had one person kind of doing both and, um, you know, people kind of lending a hand where they could, but that was really how we operated for a while. What did you learn most working for Theo through the years? What did I learn most? Um, Theo is an incredibly intelligent guy, um, but really what I learned most was probably the way he, he talked to people. Um, to be uh, as transparent as he could be and honest with them about whether it was a easy, uh, you know, a positive conversation or a negative conversation, just to be able to kind of um, deliver that message uh, clearly and but also with empathy uh, to the person that you're talking to. I mean, I, I feel like that was a big part of, of what I learned on the baseball side of things: the creativity, um, the you know, always pushing to get better taking that mindset that we, sh- we can always get better, that you know, never be satisfied with what we think we know because this game will humble you quickly. And so we, we need to be kind of pushing forward and learning as much as we can, as fast as we can. Uh, that mentality has really pushed me. I've been doing this podcast for two plus years and probably talked to 10 or 12 people who have worked under Theo, mm-hmm. either Boston, Chicago, and every single one of them talks about the culture he creates. Yeah. In a front office, some have used fraternity as, as a, a word. Some, What is it about that that culture that he creates that is so unlike what apparently every other place is? You know you're going to spend a lot of time uh, working at the office with the people you're working with. It become They become your second family. And it's very, that's very cliche, but it really is the culture that's fostered. And... You know, it's a place where everyone can be comfortable to debate, to disagree, but we all know that, you know, we've got each other's backs, we all trust each other. Um, so that was really the openness. Yeah, there was definitely the kind of fraternity antics going on there. We were mostly in our 20s um, when he was there, um, so here. So, you know, that was, it really is just that camaraderie. And I mean, there's still a lot of the people I work with are still really close friends of mine. Um, they're people I can reach out to and get it, seek advice, whether it's career advice, personal advice. So 
it really is just these people that become lifelong friends and feel really close to them. And, and to have that comfort level, it, you were able to kind of have debates, and sometimes those debates could be, you know, pretty harsh, and people might get upset, but it was never, uh, there weren't grudges held. There'd be, you kind of, like, like brothers, I mean, it was, obviously, it's a very male-dominated industry, especially back then. Um, you just don't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't hold a grudge, and you'd just kind of move on, and everything was fine, and so it was, it was healthy in that way, and so you enjoyed spending all the time. There was not, you look forward to going to work, um, you know, when the team's home, you're excited to, to kick off a homestand uh, and, be, and be basically living at the ballpark, so that was important. You mentioned Bill James before. Obviously, for somebody who has been as involved with statistics and analytics as you have, what what influence has he had on you, not only from when you were just reading his stuff sure. before, but actually working with him? I really enjoy being around Bill. I mean, he's not based out of Boston. He's based out of his home in, in Lawrence, Kansas, but he's... He's hilarious, first of all. Um, what I really like about Bill is that he tries to think very differently about the game. He's not, you know, he's he's a big picture thinker. He's trying to, um, it's almost like, you know, he's kind of in a think tank type of situation where he's just trying to come up with new ways to, to new perspectives and new ways to look at things to then kind of hand off to people to execute on that and kind of get into the details and the nitty gritty. Um, what I've always admired about Bill from both the way he writes and just interacting with him is I feel like he's one of the true the few people who truly doesn't really care what what people think and I and he's earned that to some degree um, and I respect respect that he actually feels that way so I love that he would write something in a book and just be like yeah I'm not going to get into details because I just don't feel like it and um, you know he was always the one that would come up with things that no one ever thought about um, and then yeah it would take a lot of work of other people to kind of refine it and get it, you know, perfect. But that wasn't really his role, um, and he does it in an entertaining way. So, and it doesn't mean every idea is gonna is gonna hit. But I like I respect the fact that he's just kind of pondering the universe, the baseball universe, and trying to think of things in a different light. You mentioned that when you first came aboard, even though you didn't have a big analytics department, you were still probably ahead of a lot of other teams. That wasn't the case about eight or ten years later, and it was written about a lot that the Red Sox had fallen behind a lot of other teams in terms of the number of people in the analytics department. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that disappointing for you that it happened, or did it just make you kind of want to work harder? Well, it was. I did work hard to try to convince people that we needed to invest more in this area. And, I, you know, we were always you know, as an organization, very open to investing in more scouts, um, more PD, or at least like people that we thought would be impactful in those areas. And we kind of forgot for a while, we forgot about uh, investing more in the analytics side. And part of the reason was um, the amount of data that we were getting didn't necessarily justify um, a huge investment. And obviously that changed with tracking the pitch tracking data that ball tracking data that started to come in um you know 2008 2009 so but what what happened was we weren't prepared for that kind of explosion of information so when it came along we were still the same size and we and it took us a while there was a real lag there for us to staff it properly to be able to move forward faster and we saw other teams especially in our division kind of taking the ball and running with it and, uh, you know, we just weren't able to move that fast, uh, which with anything that's innovation, you want to be able to move fast in the right direction. You don't want to move too fast that you're actually going down the wrong path very quickly. But um, we weren't able to, you know, increase our velocity in that area in, in, in terms of innovating. So, yeah, that was frustrating. But, you know, eventually, um, you know, we had enough conversations that, that ownership definitely realized that we need to invest in this area. And, uh, and in fact, we started to really make a, a point of doing that. We had a, hired a couple analysts around 2013, 2014, I'd say. And then right around the time Dave came in is actually when we had just had conversations with, with ownership to, to kind of move forward in this area in a bigger way. And, and Dave was on board with that when he came on, came on too. So we started really rapidly growing after that. You, over the last few years, your job description is very broad. 
you, at least according to your bio in the media guide, uh, you oversee the team's baseball analytics and baseball systems departments, uh, which provide decision support to baseball leadership in all areas of the operation and build software tools to deliver analytical insights and improve workflows. That's a lot of words. Uh, you also share oversight of the sports science program and assist Dave Dombrowski in player acquisition, contract analysis, strategic initiatives. It's a lot of stuff. What's your favorite part of the job? And the favorite part of the job is always player acquisition, you know, trying to identify um, potentially undervalued players, you know, constructing the roster, constructing the team, acquiring. I mean, that's, I think, why anyone wants to do this. And for me, my main focus has is, is typically been at the major league level since I've been here uh, or the high minors. Um, but overseeing our baseball R&D department allows, you know, one of the great things about that is that we t- really do work for every branch of baseball operations. And so... You know, we're supporting amateur scouting, international, amateur pro, all these things, player development. So, you know, we have the opportunity to potentially work with with people in those departments to make an impact there in both making our players that we do have better and also um, doing a better job of acquiring talent in those different entry points. Uh, We've seen the devaluation of a lot of statistics that people relied on as sort of determining how good a player was for a very long time back of the baseball card kind of stuff, wins, batting average, RBIs, et cetera. Um, when did you first begin to realize that some of the numbers that the majority of baseball fans referred to when talking about how good a player was were as flawed as they seemed to be? Fairly early. Um, I mean, as I said, I was reading some work by Bill James, so I was kind of tipped off to that. Um, I definitely remember having lots of arguments with my father about Wade Boggs' value and <laughs> growing up um, as he was someone that obviously is the poster child for on-base percentage. And so, you know, the Boston, typical Boston fan was very frustrated that he didn't hit more home runs, and I just loved that he was batting leadoff, you know, not a fast guy that just would walk 100 times, hit 360. I mean, it was so ridiculous what he did. Um and so I always appreciated that. So pretty early I learned that. Uh, another executive told me recently that as far as analytics have come and defensive metrics and all that, the defensive metrics are still the one that he doesn't completely buy into. Mm-hmm. Where do you stand on, on defensive metrics in general? And, and are there certain metrics that you find more useful than others? Yeah, I mean, it depends. When, if people are talking about the defensive metrics that are publicly available. Um, there's definitely some flaws in, in kind of, not flaws in the methodology, it's more of the volatility of those types of numbers. So I think it's how you utilize them and how you communicate them to um, other people in our baseball operation. So we have our own proprietary metrics that, that we use. Um, it's probably not all that different than what other teams are doing. Um, with the data that we have available, the StatCast data gives us, at least for the major league players, um, the ability to do something a little bit more uh, granular than what's kind of been traditionally out there. Um, but yeah, I mean, I have those conversations with people because there's a lot of people that feel that way, and they're not necessarily wrong because, um, you know, the differences at the major league level, these guys are so good that, you know, what you're really comparing is kind of the balls out on the margins um, you know there's so many there's so many bad balls that are easy to catch so it gets you start getting into these smaller samples that are really these small differences can separate players quite a bit so you know it can be a nuanced conversation that we have um, but yeah it's you know everyone's got a comfort level with offensive statistics and some pitching statistics because it's been around forever so anything and it's really a bigger picture challenge that we run into because a lot of you know what people that have been baseball forever know has changed so much you know we can we we can now get under the surface of all the numbers whether it's batting numbers pitching numbers and we can um, get to another level of detail that helps us understand player performance better and so one of the challenges that um, I face and my team faces is having those conversations with people to kind of get them to almost recalibrate the way they think about these things so when you glance at kind of a, a standard stat line 
you're looking at it realizing this may not be telling you the story that you used to think it was telling you, that we have another way. You know, there's a level underneath that that we can now go to to give you a better sense of what's actually happened or, you know, in our case, what we think will happen going forward. You mentioned StatCast. What kind of impact do you think StatCast and TrackMan have had on front offices and on the way fans watch the game? Because all of a sudden, terms like exit velocity and launch angle and uh, you know, mm-hmm. route efficiency were not were not things that were on a broadcast five years ago, and now all of a sudden you're seeing them in highlights. Right. Well, for the on the first part of how it's changed front offices, I mean, it's kind of what I was just saying. It allows you to dig deeper and really get a better understanding of, of what's really going on. And especially the StatCast data really helps us answer the why questions. You know, where numbers typically summarize kind of what has happened. Now you can better understand why that's happened or how it's happened, uh, trying to evaluate uh, the tools of players, the different skills, rather than just the outcomes. Um it's hard to know how it's impacted fans. I mean, I, I'm sure there's some fans that love this level of detail and some fans that can't stand it and think uh, nerds like me are ruining the game, <laughs> um, which is fine. Um, I've always, obviously, I've found this part of the game interesting. But, I, I, you know, so I don't really have a, a, a handle on that, how people perceive it. Um, Do you find it, people in your life talking to you differently about the game than they used to? Not people in your office, but yeah, his friends, friends, yeah. family, etc. Um some not much. Uh, most, to be honest, most of my friends and family don't. They, they kind of know at this point to not talk too much about it. But right. I, I like to. I mean, I always tell them you, you can feel. I'll, I love baseball. I'll always feel good about talking about baseball. But yeah, I've had some friends ask me some questions about it, more that they want to understand it, um, and they're you know kind of fascinated by the things that we're able to do compared to what they've known in the game. Um, the one thing you know that comes with new information is. That people, these buzzwords keep getting thrown around as far as like, you know, it'll be like the fly ball revolution or launching, all these things. They, they Everything becomes oversimplified. And when you're working in the game, we have to be very, we're very focused on individuals and identifying individual players or trying to make individual players better. So these broad um, kind of uh, statements that are made about the game changing they're somewhat true, but not really, and kind of the reasons why. It becomes a narrative that sometimes makes our jobs harder to, to you know, people start thinking like, oh, every hitter is trying to just drop their back shoulder and launch the ball. And so, well, it's not completely true, and, you know, we have to be able to explain the nuances of what may be really be going on because it's not one thing that drives improved exit velocities and launch angles. So that, those are the kind of things that's it's on us to, to make sure we understand it fully so we can explain it and everyone, especially decision makers, are well informed of what, what this information is telling us. So we know 10, 15 years ago, 20 years ago, there were certain teams using analytics a lot more than others. It was sort of a you know secret society of teams that were really taking advantage of this. Mm-hmm. Now all 30 teams have analytics departments. They all, to varying degrees, but they all have them. How can teams and front offices differentiate themselves now? What's sort of, without giving me any state secrets, obviously, what's sort of the next frontier that you think teams are going to be sort of digging into beyond trying to further their analytical right. uh, you know, databases and, and how they use them? But what, what's the next thing? Well, I think a huge component of, of what we need to that we have, at least I'll speaking for our own team, that we're trying to improve is um, is the implementation side of it. And so really just the, the kind of workflow of how when we discover something in the data, how do we then communicate it? How do we utilize technology? There's just so much, there's so much going on. So I don't think, and maybe this is just us, but I, I think there's a lot with what we currently have that we still need to do in terms of kind of how we communicate the most important pieces of information to people, how we get everyone on the same page, um, how we kind of stay consistent uh, with our messaging so we're not all over the place. We don't want to be confusing coaches and confusing players. Um, we want to be simplifying and making their lives easier and in, in allow them to have the most important information to make the, the best decisions. Uh, that's a huge task, and especially when there's new technologies all the time and there's you know, a hundred different technologies that try to do the same thing and you have to kind of vet these things. It becomes a huge 
uh, process that you have to go through. So I don't see that going away anytime soon. So I do think that that's still, um, you know, just to give one example, you know, in the sports science area, that's still a, a growing area. Um, and there's a lot that falls under that umbrella. And so, you know, I don't think that's going to go away. Um, but, you know, we're what I've always liked about the Red Sox is that we're always trying to get better on all fronts. So, yes, I'm speaking specifically about analytics and technology, but, you know, I talk to Gus Qualabaum in pro scouting all the time about how, um, you know, he wants to t- you know, kind of brainstorm on how he can improve his process or the way he's um, communicating to scouts or how we're developing scouts to kind of evolve as, as we kind of learn new things about the game. Um, and that's true on the amateur side of things too, and the player development side. So, so to me, that's a big part of the implementation too. Is there's a constant education process. We're learning about things on the analytics side, um, and if we learn about you know the, some of the things I've taken away are you know that the way I may have been thinking about certain things in the game ten years ago was probably not the right way to think about these things. And so that's always going to happen, hopefully, that we're always learning new things about the game. And then how do we kind of um, spread that message throughout the organization in an effective way? With all the information that you guys have access to, has player evaluation gotten easier or harder? Because there's so much more to go by. Um, and when I know you all use numbers differently, but if most teams have access to the same types of information, um, I guess what 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 else can delineate your feelings about a player? Sure. Yeah, I think I think in a lot of ways it's gotten harder because there's so much information to synthesize, and so you know if you're in the decision making seat, whether that's heading up the draft or if you're you know, a general manager or president of baseball ops. That is the challenge, is that there's so many different pieces of information, and sometimes they can be conflicting because you're looking at the quantitative and you're comparing it to the qualitative. And sometimes we're trying to blend the two in an analytical way to kind of weight these things properly by studying kind of the predictive value of all these different things. Um, And then when it gets to the desk of that decision maker, and they need to understand kind of how we got there, but, you know, it's hard. So that's how we try to help them is... A lot of what we can do is help um, through through research and analysis figure out like what's the pr- what is the proper weighting for some of these things that we're learning about, um, and there sometimes can be a lag that you need to. You know, we call it research and development because, like any R and D in any company, there's there's you're investing energy in studying these things, but there's kind of a lag in when you're actually going to be able to use them um, because you got to collect enough information to learn about it and learn really the right thing so you know you want to do that quickly but we need to make sure we're, we're really uh, validating kind of what we're learning about it and that we're packaging up the information or the, the insights that we learn from that in the right way so it can be used by the decision makers in a way that's not overwhelming them and I think that's the challenge is this could be very overwhelming given the volume of data this may be my favorite question to ask any analytically inclined person in baseball do you believe intangibles are a real thing Intangibles? Uh, yeah. No, I believe, um, you know, there's, we talk a lot about makeup of players. And to me, the way I've always talked about it with others in our office is that makeup is incredibly important. It's the hardest thing to predict because the same person's makeup could be good one year and not so good the next year. And we've experienced that. Um, where your focus may be on you know, team goals, and then the next year your focus becomes on individual goals and maybe become a little selfish and or maybe make some noise in the clubhouse that becomes distracting. So th- I definitely think those are real things. Um, and cult- clubhouse culture is really important. Uh, that's one of the reasons. You know, It's not just because Alex is open to analytics that I like Alex. I think he's really a really good people person and handles the culture cultural aspect of it so well um, and I think it's really important can't quantify it um, maybe down the road we can but <laughs> right now as is we can't quantify it but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist and it's not important the other thing you can't quantify that a lot of people love to debate is there such thing as a clutch player now you're in a tricky spot here because you have been involved with maybe one of the most clutch players of all time 
during these World sure. Series runs with David Ortiz. So do you believe that he's just that good a player, or do you believe there is such a thing as guys who are clutch players? So, I mean, my answer to that would always be I've watched David Ortiz play, so it's hard to not believe in a clutch <laughs> right. player. Um, so I do believe that players get locked in. Um, I believe that you know they get in the zone or a flow state, and there's there's science behind that to back that up. I don't believe we can predict when that's going to happen or if it's going to happen, um, and that's kind of the data. It doesn't mean it's not real because if you start aggregating data and you're not just looking at an individual, there's going to be you're not going to see that in the data. You're not going to see that because this guy's on a hot streak, that hot streak's going to continue. You're never going to know when those. Same thing with a slump, when that's going to end. It's really hard to figure those things out in the data. But just like anything else, we're talking about an individual. So it doesn't mean, you know, if you have a normal distribution of players and most of them can't can't rise to the occasion, there probably are some that can. And I always used to think about it as I, f- I believe that there were players who might crumble under the pressure of, of the spotlight. Um, and not so much players that could rise. I don't really think that way so much anymore. I think there are players, you know, Derek Jeter was someone that his performance was always um, pretty similar in the postseason as it was to his regular season, which in a by, by itself is really impressive because you're facing much better competition. So, you know, these guys are good players, and those both of those examples, they're really good players. They're Hall of Fame uh, players. But, um, yeah, I don't... You know, I believe that that's a real thing, I, but the data's not going to tell you that. Right. We talked a little bit about Alex Cora before. Um, obviously, coming from Houston and everything they do, he bought in immediately and, and maybe even, you know, sort of said, I want more uh, on the analytic front in terms of how we use them. We've seen some other manager front office relationships that haven't gone as smoothly. How important was it when you guys hired him that he was sort of so gung-ho about, about you know, this sort of evolution? Yeah, well, obviously, I was excited about it. Um, I, Dave included me in the interview process along with um, you know another half dozen people from different perspectives, and it was clear right away that Alex was excited about this stuff. And you know, it, it was something that was pretty new to him. You know, his one year in Houston, he got a ton of exposure, and probably would tell you that he went into it a little skeptical, but then came out of it thinking, "Wow, this stuff really can help." And so, yeah, he had a bunch of ideas about what he wanted to do. Um, we connected right away um, and had started having really productive conversations right away about um, the kind of things he wanted to do. And, and that whole all of last off season and spring training, there was a, a lot of um, new work for us and fun work for us. And, uh, you know, spring training was pretty cool to kind of be having a lot of those conversations. And then throughout the season as well, because, you know, we couldn't deliver everything right away. A lot of it was new. We had been focused on other areas previously just because there wasn't as much demand coming from the clubhouse which was just a different style and that was fine we had plenty to do um but he there was there was a lot of demand coming from Alex and that was great so we were really engaged all season long um it was a transition for a lot of coaches that hadn't been exposed to some of the stuff that we've been doing and so there was a lot of conversations that needed to happen and a lot of uh you know kind of tweaking on our end as we you know were trying to deliver things that were helpful knowing they weren't perfect and improve them so it was it was a process and a long process and a really enjoyable one for me. And um, we're continuing that now. We're in a much better spot a year later in spring training, but there's still more that, that they want to do, and we're excited about it. We've seen some players sort of push back a little bit. I don't want all this information. I've been doing it my way for years. The fact that Alex communicates as well as he does with them um, and is really a player's manager, as mm-hmm. the saying is, uh, how much does that help sort of further your cause when yeah. he's trying to explain to them why this is important and why they should be listening. Yeah, well, with any of this stuff, credibility is really important. And, you know, Alex inherently has that. Uh, being And he's such an honest person and transparent person that he has really good conversations with the players. But, um, yeah, I mean, we want everything to flow through the coaches. So if, if they have an ability to kind of deliver the messages and you know understand what's behind it with conversations with us and then talk to the players in a way that they know is going to get their attention or they're going to be able to to understand and it's different for each individual so you really have to have uh, a good feel for each player's personality and how they learn because everyone 
a lot of people learn differently. So he has that ability to figure that out and figure out the most effective way. And so do the, the other coaches, um, Tim Hires and and, uh, and Dana Levangie, uh especially. Your outfielders were probably the most skeptical last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, game in June in Minnesota, Mookie has sort of shaded over right center field. Joe Mauer hits a ball basically right to him, mm-hmm. and Mookie pulls out the, the positioning card from his pocket and sort of weighs it to the dugout. Was that, you know, what did you think when you first saw that? It was sort of like, you know. You know, I was in my office, it was a road game in Minnesota, and so I have it on TV, and I'm doing work, and I just kind of look up and see that. You know, I know Joe Mauer's coming up, so I know, and, and, and I think it had only been like a week or two that we, the outfielders actually started to, to use the cards. And so I know that Joe Maurer has, we're recommending the most extreme opposite field shift that we will for any player in baseball. Um, and so for that to happen and for him to kind of, to wave the car and a big smile on his face, you know, we got a good laugh out of it in the office. And um, Greg Rabarchuk, who, who did all that defensive work, was in the office that day as well. And it was sort of an attaboy moment for him. And it just was, it was really symbolic of um, kind of everything coming together with the work that we were doing, but also how Alex communicated and, and kind of took a laid-back approach where they were skeptical early on, and he wasn't going to shove it down their throats, but he was always telling me, we're going to get there, right. we're going to get there. But, you know, these are really talented outfielders, maybe the best outfield defensively in baseball, so, you know, I wasn't worried about it, that they weren't doing it. It wasn't something that I was mad about because I thought, well, these guys these guys are really good. Right. We think there's we can help them be even better, but... You know, I'm not that worried about those guys. So the fact that it happened, we were very fortunate that it worked out quickly in the process because, you know, they're human beings. And if something doesn't work out right away, they may go away from it. But so we felt lucky, but also, you know, satisfied. You've said that as important as the information is, the, the ability for a player to be able to combine that information with the natural baseball instincts that help get them to the big leagues that sort of makes for the perfect combination. Mm-hmm. How difficult is that to achieve that perfect combination where players are getting the information and still feeling that they well okay they're telling me to be here but I, I've seen this guy or you know I know that you know he's not swinging it as well as he usually does in this series or whatever it may sure. be how, how tough is it to sort of get that well that I perfect th- combo I think it comes with a lot of dialogue and our perspective is that we want to ha- we want to have an open dialogue about these things we, we're not we in analytics are not dogmatic about this. We know that um, you know we're trying to get uh, marginal gains here. We know it's not going to work out all the time, um, but we also know that you know we're, we may be using data that's based on something that has and something has changed since then. I mean, Alex told me about when Houston was playing us in the postseason and how you know Dustin Pedroia was obviously kind of playing on one leg at the time, so they actually positioned defensively differently because the data was based on a different version of Dustin Pedroia, and that makes a lot of sense. And so there's, you know, we want them to use, we, we've told the players, this doesn't replace your instincts. This, you know, you're still going to have to make adjustments. There's still going to be times um, where, given, you know, this is not for every situation. The coaches are going to make adjustments. You guys have to use your athleticism and instincts to make adjustments. But we want to get you in a better starting point than kind of just the standard positioning. So... Um, I think once we have those conversations and they realize that we're pretty reasonable about how we present this and that we're not telling them to be robots, we don't want we want them to, um, you know, use whether it's coaches watch, watching video. You know, it doesn't replace that work. Um, we hope it helps them in their process, but it's not the end all be all. So understanding and, and we we acknowledge the limitations of things. We're not overselling it, and I think those conversations have given us some credibility. That allows them to feel a little bit more at ease, and um, it kind of disarms that initial feeling of, you know, these guys haven't played in the big leagues. Why are they telling us what to do? And it's really that's not how we're presenting it. And I I found that to be more effective. About a week after you guys won the World Series last year, you were promoted to assistant general manager. What did that mean to you? I mean, it was great. I mean, you know, f- for Dave to to do that. Um, you know, he, he already has two assistant general managers. He didn't have to do that. It, it was it was very, it felt very rewarding. Um, you know, obviously I've been with the Red Sox for, for a long time now, so I was very appreciative that that uh, he recognized me in that way and gave me um, a little bit more responsibility as well. Is, uh, is becoming a GM your ultimate goal in this game, or 
Is that not something you think about at all? No, it is something I think about. Um, you know, it's one of those things that I've never been one to kind of uh, be trying to put my name out there for those sorts of things, but it's something I want to do. Um, you know, I'm happy to just focus on on kind of putting my head down and doing the work to, to try and win uh, more championships with the Red Sox. Uh, but it is something that, yeah, I would love the opportunity to lead a group of people um, to try and build something or, to, you know, and be kind of the, and to be the lead decision maker on that. Zach Scott, Red Sox Senior Vice President, Assistant General Manager. Appreciate the time. It was a lot of fun. Thanks. It's good talking with you, Mark. Many thanks to Zach Scott for taking the time to sit down for this week's episode of Executive Access. Coming up in future episodes this season, I'll sit down with Rays Vice President of Baseball Operations, James Click, Rockies Assistant GM, Zach Rosenthal, Cubs Senior Vice President of Player Development and Amateur Scouting, Jason McLeod, and many more executives around the league. You can search for Executive Access on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Art19, or anywhere else you listen to podcasts. So be sure to subscribe and enjoy these conversations all season long. If you like what you hear, leave us a review while you're at it. We always appreciate those. And be sure to spread the word and tell all the baseball fans in your life about Executive Access. Until next time, I'm Mark Feinstein. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.